From Oakland, California, this is a special episode of At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney at the ACLU and your host. Today's guest is none other than W. Kamau Bell, stand-up comedian, prolific podcaster, and host of his own show on CNN, United Shades of America. He's known for his incisive socio-political commentary and activism, including on behalf of the ACLU, where he serves as an artist ambassador for racial justice. He's a person who doesn't need much introduction, and we have lots to discuss, so we'll dive right in. Kamau Bell, thanks very much for having us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. That was a very professional intro, by the hey, way. Hey, thanks. You know, we're trying to keep it pro. That was good. It was good. I felt like I heard that like news sound from back there. Welcome to At Liberty. That's what we're going for. So, come on. We have a lot of things we want to cover. But with all the talk about going back to where you came from and going back to Africa, I actually want to start by giving you props for the best back to Africa line I've ever heard. So we're here in Oakland, my wife's hometown. But you recently, last year you were in Kenya, another place I've spent a lot of time. You were there with Bourdain and you arrived in Nairobi, surrounded by people every shade of black. Yeah. And your response was... Anthony, this is what I thought Oakland was going to look like when I first moved there. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Yes, that's true. That's true. So that was a a beautiful connection between two places that I love in Oakland and Nairobi. But I'm wondering what has stuck with you a year later from that trip, especially as regards to race and its experience here and there and all over? The big thing I felt when I was there is like, I got to get my kids here as soon as possible. And by as soon as possible, I mean when they can take a 10-hour flight. You know, I have almost a 14-month-old and a a four-and-a-half-year-old and an eight-year-old. And so I was was like, we have to figure out how to prioritize this because, you know, I'm a grown-ass man who should have gone a long time ago, but also just didn't live a life where that was going to be like, you know, international flight was possible. You know, I was trying to be a comedian, all these kind of things. There's lots of reasons why I didn't do it, but feeling like... I got to travel more around the continent. So, I mean, I certainly feel like I got to make West Africa a priority, you Mm -hmm. know, because that's where most of my DNA comes from. But really trying to figure out how to get my kids there. You know, the big thing I've learned from being a parent is that the more you sort of your kids experience travel and see the rest of the world, the less weird they think new information is. Totally. Totally. Well, there was one other moment that stuck out to me. Uh, from your trip to Kenya, there was a time when you were visiting Kibera, a very famous slum in the middle of Nairobi, and your sort of local guide was telling you, you know, the Muzungu, they come here, they film for a few days, and then they leave, and we're left as we were before. And you turned to him and you said, wait, am I the asshole? Yes. <laughs> I think I said, are we assholes? Because I was pointing at Bourdain, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I was really happy when they left that in the edit, because that felt very me to me. Like, a lot of the episode is me sort of learning how to hang out with Bourdain, and are we really, are we becoming friends? Is this just a gig? Mm. And so that was a time I felt really, like, relaxed, and was like, I can say this thing I would say on my show. Right. You know, are we the assholes? And the fact that Bourdain laughed really hard, and everybody else laughed made me feel like, the point was made and everybody got it, yeah. Well, it was very you. And I think it also sort of captures something that you share with Bourdain, which is sort of an openness. And when you're encountering these new people, being willing to be self-reflective and think about, okay, how do I fit into this situation? Yeah. I mean, for me also, it's just something that white people don't really realize, that me going to Kenya, Kenyans don't look at me and go, he's one of us. Right. They may go, he's a black American and we want to connect with black Americans, but nobody thought I was Kenyan. Right. And so in in Kibera, I'm as, in some ways as much of an outsider as Tony is. Right. And so it was really important for me to, to not 
act like is Tony the asshole? Right, right, <laughs> are right. the white guys holding the cameras the asshole? It's like are all of us collectively the asshole? Right. Yeah. And that seems to tie really closely into your own show, United Shades of America. Can you just tell us, there's a lot of stuff going on. You cover a lot of different topics. Can you just tell us what was the mission behind United Shades of America? It's funny. Every year I sort of have this talk with CNN about what the new season is going to be or what the, and a lot of that is the mission of the show. And it has changed. There's just sharpened since the first season. The mm -hmm. first season, I think it was a lot about like fish out of water. Like, you know, what is this black guy going to do in Alaska? You know, <laughs> you know like, so, what is this black guy going to do at spring break with all these white kids? You know, mm -hmm. and that was all fine. But for me, it's really about a black American comedian trying to understand America. You know, and so it's like mm -hmm. I'm so traveling around trying to like understand how this thing works together and how it does not work together. You know, right now we're caught up in the 2020 election. When you sit down and talk to people, if you don't bring up Trump right. or if you don't bring up, you know, left, right politics, that stuff doesn't come up. It's about like, how do we make this community stronger? You know, I feel like it's a thing where every week we're basically going, see, if we all pull together, we can do this. Like every episode is saying that same thing over and over again. And every season I'm like, didn't we learn last season? If we all pull together, we can do, you know. So, you know, I feel very lucky that like I dropped out of college and I really feel like I'm getting that sociology degree I should have gotten in the first place. I'm sure you've also learned quite a bit throughout your travels. What's stuck with you in particular? There's a couple episodes I think about when I think about the episodes that had the biggest impact on me. So the first season, the episode of the biggest impact on me was one at San Quentin Prison. I'd never been inside a prison before, and I'd, mm. I had a real limited sort of like, you know, like that lock up, that prison, quote unquote, documentary reality show where they mm -hmm. show you the worst parts and everything. And so I was like, oh, I was really sensitive to going there. I don't want to make one of those things where we just show the, the sort of the most salacious elements of a prison and go, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And so I was nervous going in there. And also, I was like, why are these guys going to talk to me? You know? Right. And in that episode, you can see the moment where I sort of like opened up. I had just walked into the yard with the uh, deputy warden and he asked me like, how do you feel right now? And I was like, it is the yard, which actually looks like the yard from every prison movie, mm -hmm. divided a lot by race and activities. And he said, well, he's like, how do you feel right now? And I was like, well, I feel like a little bit like I'm walking into a neighborhood I don't know. <laughs> and then one of the guys in the prison goes, like your comedy, bro. And I was like, oh, I feel great. <laughs> and it was just that moment that I sort of opened up. It was like, I can just hang out and talk to right, people. these are people. And, and yeah, and, and also that they're, all my prison knowledge comes from things that were sensationalizing, right. you know. And so even though intellectually I could realize that, I didn't, on a heart level, I didn't know it. And so then the episode we did in season four, I believe it was, with the Sikh community, yeah. which started because Harpreet Singh from the Sikh Coalition, I think, was watching the show we did about Muslims in Michigan. Yeah. And he reached out on Twitter. He was like, you should come to Boston and do an episode about the Sikh community. And I said, mm. yes. Because it went through the Sikh Coalition and they had a buy-in early on, it just became a really interesting, informative, and really felt like they were invested in us doing it the right way. And so now I hear from people all the time how they are able to use that episode as a teaching tool. And it has also helped sort of reaffirm the thing that I know already is like, it's okay to be corrected when you make mistakes, because we screened mm. one of the episodes in front of a small community of six in New York through the Sick Coalition. Mm. And afterwards, everybody was saying, oh, we like this part, we like this part. And one guy who's a journalist from Vice, whose name I can't remember right now, sorry, sir, uh, <laughs> He was like, yeah, it was good, but you could fix your pronunciation on some of those things. And nice. it was going to air that <laughs> Sunday. And I was right. like, what? And yeah. so thankfully to the production company, all three media at the time, we went back in and re-recorded some of the things. I'm sure it's still not perfect. And so from that point forward, wherever we have episodes where there was like a language that I feel uncomfortable pronouncing or words, like we did the Hawaii episode was like that too. 
we've brought people into the VO to just listen and to help me work through pronunciation because it means a lot. Well, so you've done four seasons and now you're working on the fifth, I guess. Yes. You you guessed correct, sir. (laughs) Well, what topics have you not addressed yet that you're really hoping to or looking forward to? I would love to be able to go back to some places. Like, I really feel like we owe Puerto Rico part two of our Puerto Rico episode for a lot of reasons. But one, we went before Maria. And also, I've I've connected more with people from Puerto Rico since that episode. And also, I took my whole family to to Puerto Rico. I Mm. don't always travel with my family, but when there are places where it feels like they should go, we go. Mm They didn't go to Arkansas to meet the Klan, but they did go to Puerto Rico. <laughs> and I fell in love with Puerto Rico and was really like, man, I just would like to spend more time there. So there's things like that. I wish we could double back and go see some people because people kind of think that like there's a Facebook group somewhere where all the United States people are hanging out. And <laughs> they go, how's that guy doing? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and there's some of them I do. And I do try now to keep in touch with people. The first season, the producers of the show really were sort of treating it like it was a reality show. So I didn't have a lot of direct contact with the people off the camera and over right. the last few seasons I've really pushed that thing aside and like cool. like with the episode we did in Jackson, Mississippi, I've stayed in touch with a lot of the women from that episode. Cool. One about a uh, reproductive justice. Right. Right. Well clearly race is a central theme, if not the central theme of the show. Of my life, yes. <laughs> of your life, yeah. of life. Yeah. But I'm really interested in the way you balance getting to know folks, putting yourself in their shoes, the interpersonal aspect of race and our society. But also really trying to pull back the focus to the structural policy level things. I'm thinking, for instance, about the episode you did in Milwaukee around Living While Black, where you talked about all these incidents of interpersonal racism, but also you took a lot of time to talk about redlining and Mm -hmm. structural racism Mm -hmm. and those types of bigger picture things. And I'm wondering how you think about balancing those big picture ideas. Obviously, the show is supposed to be also funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Some more than others. Right. But it's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to connect with people. But mm-hmm. also, you're trying to make a bigger picture commentary. So how do you juggle those multiple jobs? I take the lessons I learned from a child on Sesame Street. That <laughs> 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 you can talk about big issues and also be entertaining. And education doesn't have to be boring. you know. And also, mm-hmm. I like learning these things. So then when I learn them, I like sharing them with other people. And I like figuring out a way to like make it go down in a funny or more palatable Mm -hmm. way you know whether it's sesame street or i also grew up during 90s hip-hop and edutainment Mm -hmm. (laughs) like so Mm -hmm. you know malcolm x was hilarious like for me like (laughs) there's just all these examples of how humor helped the message go down and so uh, and I mean Malcolm X the person, the movie in parts, but the if you, <laughs> it's if you, definitely the pull quote from this interview. Malcolm <laughs> X was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, like and so for me, I mean, all of these, any sort of compelling civil rights leader has been a little bit funny, right? You got to have know, charisma. You got to have charisma, and you know, and you got to keep the people paying attention, and then the people can sit and look at you. But if you, the only way you know if they're paying attention is if they laugh or if they respond to what you're saying. Well, bamboozled is a funny word. A bamboozled is one of the great words. <laughs> you know, a lot of the stuff I like to take in is like that you know i used to sit on my then girlfriend now wife's couch in oakland rockridge (laughs) to be clear for people who know and Mm -hmm. watched anthony bourdain on the travel channel and i'm Mm. like how do you do that Mm. or morgan spurlock films or Mm -hmm. michael moore films like where uh, it's a big personality who's learning with you also wants to teach you something but also wants it to be entertaining or else you're not going to get the message so 
It strikes me that one of the newest features of the mainstream discussion on race is the presence of the issue of reparations, which obviously is not a new issue, but it has a new political no, it's one, resonance. One of America's original issues. <laughs> right. But it does seem to be entering the debate mm-hmm. in a new way. And yeah. the, for me, as someone who grew up thinking of this as sort of a pie in the sky thing that radical black folks discussed. I mean, me too. <laughs> right. But now it seems like people are starting to reinterpret the term and put some meat on the bones of the mm-hmm. idea. And I think it is getting at this connection between interpersonal stuff as well as systemic racism. Like reparations might mean finding people who are redlined and helping them with their mm-hmm. home loans and that kind of thing. And I'm wondering if any of these sort of innovations or, or new topics also play into your understanding of of how we tackle these big picture issues. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the jobs of the show is to stay ahead of the conversation or also see where people are going to be talking about in a year or so, because that's, you know, we sort of start working about a year out before. Mm. It, well, not a year, but like eight or nine months before it airs. And so, like, when I hear people talking about reparations, or I see presidential candidates sort of, like, raise their hands, you know, or the bills, H.R. 40, I think it is, where the bill with the talk about reparations. Yeah. Uh, if I'm wrong, it's fine. I dropped out of college. You're, you're a lawyer. <laughs> you can fix that later. But, uh... It's like when I see people talking about that, I'm like, let's see if we can do an episode on that. So like to me, that's the same thing with like the reproductive justice episode we did, like hearing where people were talking about go, oh, we need to be there when people are ready to have the conversation. Sometimes it seems weirdly perfect when our episodes come out when something breaks in the story in a big way. So, so yes, I feel like the job of the show is to stay ahead of that and, and not to sort of get there a year too late, you know? So for me, I know that one of the core viewers of CNN are older white people who might think they're liberal, but aren't as liberal as the white people I know you know, right, in, in Oakland. Right. So they see me as some sort of Berkeley, Oakland, East Bay, socialist, whatever. And so my job is sort of like bring them to the table and do it in a way that, that feels 101, but is actually getting to a higher level of the discussion. So like the episode you talked about with uh, Milwaukee, we had talked about racism on the show for years, and I realized we've never actually defined the word racism on this show. Right. And I know that's a challenging idea. The definition of racism is defined by you know academics and organizers and activists, not by the dictionary generally. Mm. But I was like, we're going to figure out how to sort of throw this in here. And I know that for some of the people in the audience, they're going to be like, ah, but now you're wrestling with this idea. You know, so reparations is one of those things that like we've talked about that as an idea for the show. And like, how do you show it? You know, we can't just do an hour long discussion with people talking about reparations. How do you show it? And I think that's a lot of times if we don't crack stories, it's because, yes, we could make a YouTube video that explains it. But how do you show it over compellingly over 44 minutes? Well, as you said, you're trying to be entertaining, but it also sounds like you're both trying to inform, but also activate. And I think. One of the interesting things about the reparations discussion, at least as it is now, is there's a lot of focus on commemoration and memorials, whether they be Confederate or Mm -hmm. new ones for overlooked folks. And the tension or the balance between this commemoration and sort of, it seems analogous to me to the role of the artist, kind of showing a mirror, making sure people understand what's going on around them, Mm -hmm. versus really trying to get them to do something in particular. And when you have these 101s or you do these informational type of episodes, do you also have a pretty clear action that you're hoping people will take or or policy they'll consider? I mean, the, the, more since, like the more, the more we do the show, the clearer I get on the idea for the show. Also, the more that America also gets clearer. <laughs> like there's just a sense right. of like, you know, when the show first aired, it was Obama's last year in office and 
there's no way that Trump could win was the general conversation. If Hillary's votes had counted, (laughs) let's just say it that way, we would be in a position where maybe the show would be doing different things. I think it would have affected what we're doing. But the mission of the show is much clearer now in in the era of Donald Trump or the error of Donald Trump, whichever (laughs) we pronounce it. So from what I see people in the streets, they're like, I love your show. What do I do? Right. So the what do I do part is the thing that I try to be more focused on now than I was before. Hmm. A lot of that can't happen in the show. But I can say, here's an example of ways people are doing in this community. And then I engage a lot on Twitter. And then I can push out those resources like for the people who are like really want to know more. And I often hear from people like, what do I do? Who can I talk to? For most of us, we feel like. I know I can vote in the 2020 election, but what can I do up until then? Because a lot of this stuff now is just like, you know, it's breads and circuses. Mm. What can I do right now? And so I try to focus people on things they can do now. And that's why I partner up with like Donors Choose, which is about raising money for public schools, mm-hmm. giving, putting money in teachers' hands to to accomplish things in their schools that they shouldn't have to take on themselves. Right. So for me, that's the thing I'm, I'm more aware of now is like, how do I... And I, how do I more effectively move people to action? And the show is a piece of that. It's just not the final piece. Got it. No, that's really interesting. I mean, you brought up the president, so I guess we got to go to white supremacy <laughs> now and white nationalism. It's a hoax. I just saw on Fox, Tucker Carlson said it's a hoax. Oh, so we can good, move on. good we can to move know. on to something else. I feel much better now. Yeah. Um, as, well, long as, we, as long as we stay in this room and pull the shades down, we're fine. <laughs> well, so you're a racial justice ambassador at the ACLU, and I'm a free speech attorney at the ACLU. And those issues, they're not always in conflict, but sometimes there's some tension between them. And I know my predecessor was on your podcast to talk about Charlottesville. Yeah. And it's something that you've thought an awful lot about. But you also have a really interesting perspective on these things, right? Like the ACLU defends the speech of people we like and people we don't like. We've been doing it for 100 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have to defend that and explain that. And I'm happy to do so. And I, and I, you know, somebody who is associated with the ACLU, sometimes I have to defend and explain <laughs> it. And honestly, sometimes I throw my hands up like that. It's Emerson's fault. <laughs> yeah, it's Emerson's fault. Which I'm happy to take yeah. those calls if you forward them along. Yeah. But it strikes me that even myself, you know, I'm a First Amendment attorney for the, for the ACLU. I'm what some people might consider a First Amendment purist. But even I have not taking the time out of my day to go sit down with people like Richard Spencer to mm-hmm. see how what, far you want to push this, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> how committed you are to this cause. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, when I, when I talk to students or activists and I say, look, free speech doesn't mean that you need to have, you know, civil dialogue with everybody. It means mm-hmm. that you have the right to speak back against these people. But I, yeah. I know that you, uh, on a few occasions through United Shades and through other things have gone out of your way to really speak to people that, you know, you probably couldn't disagree with more. Uh-huh. Is it just good TV or is it because you have that deep belief in the power of dialogue? First of all, I let me be clear. Like if I sit down and talk to somebody I disagree with, no part of me is trying to convince them of my side of the argument. Interesting. I think people want that. And I feel like, <laughs> didn't we already live through the like the 90s talk show era of Jerry Springer and quite like, you know, you're a racist. I, you're a ra-. like Also, Geraldo, there's multiple ways to attack these problems is how right. I feel about it. So no part of me sits down with Richard Spencer and go, how can I convince him? Right. The thing that I am trying to do that many people don't appreciate in those moments is like, keep talking. Yeah. Say all the things you want to say. Interesting. Say all the, every aspect of it. And often those people will get to a place they didn't expect they're going to get because they're waiting for me to fight back. Right. And here's the thing. I don't support anything you're saying. So I don't really need to feel a fight back. So he's, the Richard Spencer thing was funny because at some point he said, 
something like, I don't mean to offend you. I was like, go for it, man. Like, say all the things. Like, try it. Let's see what happens. Because I don't buy into this. I mean, here's the thing. I do have a feeling of being in this room surrounded by all these people who think this way. I would like to leave as soon as the cameras turn off. And we had a lot of talk on the crew that day. By that point in the show, we had more people of color. So there was definitely like a people of color meeting after that. (laughs) And the white crew members understood. Like, how do we feel about that? We just need to uh, talk about the white men for a little bit. Uh, I love you, white crew members. But we got (laughs) to. So. This is the thing I hear when I do that. So there's some aspect of the audience that goes, how could you put him on TV? And then there's some aspect of the audience that goes, I had no idea that people actually still felt this way and said Hmm. these things out loud. And so there's this tightrope I have to walk of like, is it worth the pushback I'm going to get from people who I like or admire, who think they like me and decide they don't like me? And is it worth the fact that Paste Magazine is going to say Kamau Bell should have punched Richard Spencer in the face (laughs) when I'm like, okay, person who wrote this who probably has never punched anybody in the face. (laughs) That's what I should have done. And so I have to do that calculus. And so we don't do as much of that as we used to because I think we're a little bit beyond that. Like some people are like, you should try to get Trump for an interview. What would be the point of that? (laughs) I think we have enough tape on him to know how he feels (laughs) and things. I feel like a lot of the show has been this warning. Like we did the KKK episode. We taped it in August of 2014. It didn't air until 2016. And people are like, why are you putting the clay on TV? That's not a thing. Right. Well, guess what? Within a year, those ideas were clear. Like they're not all wearing the, the uh, costumes anymore, but those ideas were clearly in the White House, you know? So, you know, I'm not trying to fight with them. I'm not trying to change their mind. This is the thing I people don't understand. The show is a TV show about a guy making a TV show. (laughs) (laughs) So when I'm sitting there, I'm going to prod and ask questions, but I'm not going to try to convince you that that love is love is love is love. You know, you know, and there are people sometimes who you do see them go just through the nature of conversation that they sort of come to some new understandings. But it's not like I'm sitting down going today, I'm going to convince a white supremacist not to be a white supremacist. People want to think that the world is that movie American History X where Ed Norton and Joe Torre, like, you know, because they did clean laundry together, suddenly Ed Norton's not a white supremacist anymore. Right. And it's like, that's not the world. Yeah. You know, I'm not trying to win these people over. I'm trying to alert the people who are like, I don't know, it's probably not as bad as I think it is. Right. <laughs> to go, no, it's, yeah, you need to pay more attention. Well, it struck me as a black man making a show about a black man making a show. Yeah. You were putting an awful lot of trust in the power of cameras, right? Because you're in this room full of these people who literally hate you mm-hmm. uh, and wish you didn't exist or would at least go away. But I think they won't one... go away because I feel like the thing that the Richard Spencer <laughs> thing is <laughs> what everybody would they do without us. Like there would be this thing where they would like sort of circle me and sort of like it's, <laughs> like and sort of like it was like it's like like they were just like these fish that were sort of circling me and sometimes one would walk up and try to like huh, huh, what do you think about all this like it's fine yeah oh okay like there yeah there's there's yeah it's more of a fascination wish that we were gonna have a whole white supremacist fun party until <laughs> until come out until you showed up well it's, I mean the power dynamic is strong but you have the camera and so. That's a huge safety valve and a piece of privilege yeah, that you're I, trying to use to expose. Wouldn't walk into those rooms without a camera crew. Right. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't, not encouraging other people to do it without a CNN camera crew. I'm not, right. you know, I'm not, this is not, I'm not Sasha Baron Cohen. I'm not trying to like, <laughs> this is not a stunts and pranks. Yeah. And also the other thing is like the more it's gone on, I also have a family and I got, you know, I got a wife and three kids and they have to pay for whatever I do on some level, right. you know, and we also have to figure out how to make sure that they don't have to pay for it as much as somebody would like them to pay for it. And, right. You know, it affects the life and safety of my family. So yeah. I take it very seriously. So it's like, despite the fact I'm a comedian, as I've written on Facebook, my bio is like, I tell jokes, but I'm not kidding. You yeah. know, like, so I'm yeah. like, this is real life. So I'm yeah. not I'm not trying to be stunty, you right. know, and, and sometimes the show has sort of veered into that and I've pushed against it. And hmm. so 
the other thing about the Richard Spencer thing specifically that, I, that it's funny that I get asked about him a lot even now, even though I feel like time has proven that he is a paper champion, I guess mm. I'll say. Doesn't mean the ideas aren't dangerous, but he specifically is a paper champion. Is that people will watch the commercial for the show. And Chris Rock told me this years ago and not watch the show, but then have opinions about the show. <laughs> so a lot of people, I think, believe I had a 45, an hour long interview with right. Richard Spencer that aired live, you know, right. when in reality, he was like eight minutes of a show that was about refugees and immigrants and how this country needs to treat refugees and immigrants better. Right. And I really feel like the thing I feel that we've that sort of failed about that show is that the Richard Spencer part of it was pushed so much yeah. that a lot of people never engaged with what the show actually was about, which was like, if he's in there for eight minutes, then it's, uh, you know, then it's 36 minutes of hearing stories from refugees and immigrants right. and how this country needs to do a better job of supporting refugees and immigrants. Uh, you know, this is, I, as a person who grew up with a mom who was born in Indiana in 1937, right. which is basically like being born in Alabama in right. 1862, <laughs> right. and who remembers separate but equal, and she was bused to school, and whites only this, and black people sitting here, and all this kind of stuff, who saw that. And then before I was born, she was almost a black Muslim. She like went through all the phases mm. of black people at that point in the country, you know, right. founded a black literary journal. And Names so like- her kids African names. Yeah, gives her kids African names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was an, she was an early adopter to that, you know, and then went to Africa and, you know, so all these things. And I was an only child, so I was with her a lot in places because she didn't have childcare, single mom. And I would hear these conversations. And so I've been hearing these conversations my whole life. My mom just reminded me yesterday. She's like, do you remember when you met Toni Morrison? Whoa. And I was like, I thought that was Alice Walker. She's like, no, you met her too. So <laughs> wow. like, that's my mom. Like, right. you know, she wasn't friends with these people, but right, when but they came to town, she would take me along. Mm. So that's my DNA too, as much as, you know, West Africa, those conversations and, and talking about it and trying to figure it out and try to figure out how to be a part of this, how to sort of be a productive part of this struggle. Well, I guess one note I wanted to to hit, maybe we can end here. You talked about the influence that your mom has had on you and how you were raised. And now, you know, you're a parent. I'm also a parent. We got these kids coming up in this crazy time, surrounded by this crazy news, can't even turn on. I'm, I grew up listening to NPR over yeah, breakfast. Yeah, yeah. Nope. I, the, <laughs> NPR is not playing over breakfast in my household. No. Just the part that goes, now turn it off. Yeah, exactly. But- I'm interested in hearing how you do approach, you know, these are big issues that you think about in your work, in your life. You know, how do you come home, kiss your kids at night and look in their eyes and tell them everything's okay? Uh, and once you figure it out, can you help me? Yeah, I don't know how like, to do first it. of all, do I do that? I mean, I think I do. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's funny. Me and my kids talk a lot about gratitude. We talk a lot about, and not even privilege in a racial way, but like we have been, we have a lot of things other people don't have yeah. based on the fact that that they happen to be born once my career started going better. <laughs> like the, right. Those lucky, lucky little kids. Uh, <laughs> if you'd only been here 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, so like, the, you know, that we talk about safety and we talk yeah. about, you know, where we are in the world. And we talk about this the other day with Juno. We were suddenly in a conversation about race. And she was like, I, and Juno, my four-year-old, is will be able to pass. White people will think she's white. Black people don't. Same with my five-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so we talked about how she's like, I'm, she's like, I'm black, but I'm also white. And I was like, yes, but you, it was like, but, but you are a black person. You are half, you are half white because of mama, but you are a black person. And she was like, okay. You know what I mean? So like, and they're, they know Trump is the president. 
uh, my eight year old know we wanted the lady to win. <laughs> you know, like, so, like, there's, there's all these things that yeah. like they're aware of. She may know Clinton's name, but at the time I heard her say the lady. But uh, <laughs> you know, like every school has active shooter drills. Like, mm-hmm. You know, like the, the the older kid, like sort of like if a bad person comes in the school, I don't want to shield them from all of it because mm-hmm. it just it just doesn't feel. It's, it's to get into another non-controversial subject. It's like not vaccinating your kids. Mm. Like they need to know a, what's out there and yeah. that the and that we have a great life and we do great things and we have a lot of fun. Also, you know, this is Donald Trump and this is what he's saying and and a little I feel like a little bit of news is good. A little bit of like of like what's going on there and me explaining to them is good. We don't leave CNN all all day, but sometimes in the morning I'll turn it on. And, you know, sometimes it is a little bit like, whoa, but like a, I feel like a little bit of news is good because it lets them know that there's a bigger world out there. And as good as you're having it, not everybody's having it that good. And they'll they'll be curious one way or another. If you yes. ignore it and you don't say anything, they'll still be wondering. I think that's I, th- I mean, you know, I'm not trying to put too fine a point on it, but I think it's negligence <laughs> like, like as I put a fine point on it. You know, you cannot feed your kids vegetables and your kids will be fine probably Ish. you know yeah but, but it's also like hand them a carrot every now and again I feel, I feel the same way about the news i feel about carrots every now and again i just hand my kids carrots for no reason just because it's like it's not it's not lunchtime it's not time to eat here's a carrot just eat a carrot and so i feel the same way about that i feel the same way about motown listen to a little motown just because i don't want you to be the black kid who light-skinned and don't know motown <laughs> also donald trump's the president and he's trying to stop people from coming into this country, even though our country is supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, give us your huddled masses yearning to break free. So, yeah. We're, so all of that. The, the, our, our family is daddy has brown skin, mommy has white skin, and Donald Trump is not kind. <laughs> That's a good, I like that. It sounds like a, it's like a country song. <laughs> Kamal Bell, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, and tweet at ACLU with feedback. We appreciate your input and we'll be sure to read every message. Till next week, peace.